0: PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
1: Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor of The Economist, and this is Money Talks. Coming up this week, some economic predictions for the new year.
2: This is billed as the year in which we get landmark Eurozone reform. We're really going to start fixing the roof on, on the Eurozone Are they all? architecture. No, this is the one, because the elections are over now, Simon. So we're going to definitely, definitely do it this time. And I think we're definitely, definitely not going to do it. And how can the field of economics attract more women?
3: My hope is that people being aware of this will kind of make them slow down when they're looking at a paper and kind of considering whether the woman should get tenure based on this paper. But the more tangible thing, I think, would be to change the authoring system.
1: To begin the new year, we're going to predict what kind of a year it will be for Money Talks, what kind of stories we will be covering, and what economic news would we like to happen. To help us out, we've enlisted John O'Sullivan, our economics editor, to look at Europe and the UK, and Henry Kerr, our US economics editor, to look at his side of the pond. And we'll be taking the view from Asia in a World in 2018 Economics special. Hello, John. Thanks for joining us. And, and hello, Henry over there in, in Washington. John, let, let me start with you. And you've got a big job, economics editor of The Economist. So a big question. How would you sum up the state of the global economy at the moment?
2: Uh, it's in about as good a shape as it's been since the financial crisis. So we had a, a pretty decent sort of synchronized global recovery in 2010. And then that got didn't last very long, got short circuited by the Eurozone crisis. And the Eurozone went into quite a nasty, deep and long recession. Uh, almost as soon as Europe emerges from that, emerging markets go into a sort of three-year slump. Uh, all through this period, as, as Henry will tell us in a moment, uh, the American economy is pretty much ground out sort of quarter after quarter of, of growth. But we've never had a situation really where all parts of the global economy are firing on are firing at the same time and really since the end of 2016 beginning of this year we started to see a a synchronized global upturn we always talk about we were talking about green shoots and spring for the global economy back in march now obviously though at that point it was very tentative but it has if anything, sort of gathered momentum since then. So we're in about as good a position as we've been for the last 10 years globally.
1: And Henry, I suppose that must be more or less the way it feels over where you are in the United States, isn't it? That there's a a real mood of optimism about.
0: Yes, I'd I'd say so. There's a feeling that uh, the long economic expansion, which many people have uh, seen as disappointing in, in its speed, is is finally reaching a kind of combination where you can say that the US has recovered definitively from the financial crisis we're approaching a point where the labor market uh, is is probably is as, as good as or close to as good as it can get in most people's view and the US is obviously benefiting from this trend uh, this lift in the in the in the world economy its exports are doing a bit better the dollar's come down a little bit as as the rest of the world economy has uh, has improved uh, and you've had very two very strong Uh, GDP growth numbers, uh, 3.1% in the second quarter and 3.3% in the third quarter, uh, which have lifted people's spirits too. I think the big question for America in 2018 is whether things are going to get a little too hot.
1: Indeed, we're seeing the Fed begin to tighten to raise interest rates again. How concerned are people that the economy might be close to overheating?
0: Well, certainly, if you look at some indicators, if you look at the unemployment rate, uh, which is close to 4%, that's very low by historical standards, certainly recent historical standards. And people think that the labor market can't improve much more. That's what the Fed thinks. It reckons that if it doesn't tighten policy enough this year, inflation is going to appear and get out of control. The problem is that that inflation has been very slow to materialize. Wage gains are still slower than people would like, uh, and inflation spent pretty much all of two thousand seventeen. Uh, disappointing people. So it's a bit speculative. But certainly the fact that the Fed's raising rates indicates that people are are concerned that inflation might be around the corner.
1: Turning to Europe and the Eurozone, John, I, I suppose the fear of overheating would be a, a dream to policymakers here. They're still a lot further behind. Right?
2: Oh, they'd love a bit of overheating, I think. Um, yeah, so, so the American recovery is much longer in the tooth than, than the Eurozone recovery, which really started in 2013. So there's still plenty of slack in the European economy, unemployment's around about 9%. And even if you think the sustainable unemployment rate in Europe is somewhat higher because the labour market doesn't work quite as well, as not as flexible, it's very difficult not to feel there's quite a lot of resources you can use up before things start to hot up or you start to get bottlenecks in the labour market and so on. So that's good. I think for going back to the global economy, Europe is generally driven by stimulus from without. So Northern Europe has always been export-led, Uh, So a fast growth in global economy gets that bit of the continent going. And southern Europe has sort of had to become a kind of more export-led economy because it's much harder to drive uh, consumption there than it has been in the past during the great great credit boom with the first 10 years of of the euro. So with global growth good, Europe does well. Can it do as well as it did this year? Well, it's not sort of too contrarian to say when expectations are high, expect you know, expect surprises on the downside. It's difficult for to get an upside surprise. It's more like you get something that sort of surprises on the downside uh, this year. That's not to say it won't be a, a great year, but it's really hard for it to do much better.
1: And, and what are the most likely surprises on the downside? Well, I guess if they're most likely, they can't be surprises, but I know people worry, for example, about elections still in, in Italy. Is it still politics that is the biggest cloud on, on the horizon?
2: Well, I think it's, you could just call it Italy in, in, the, in the round rather than just, just politics. It's the vulnerable economy, of, of size in, in Europe. It's a slow growth economy with very high debt and it can't print to pay off that debt. So it's vulnerable to a shock. And by shock, I don't necessarily mean a, a surprise, I mean a sort of a, a kind of disturbance to the, the recent trends. And that, that could be, that can come from maybe two sources, elections or, or bond yields rise to make all that debt a bit less sustainable. We're pretty confident I think we're gonna see elections by early March. They have to come by May. It now looks like March. The sense is that no grouping will dominate Italian politics. So it's hard to say just how what kind of coalition or what kind of government will get as a consequence of it. But we probably can say that there isn't a dominant anti-Europe or anti-EU sort of populist coalition in there. So even if politics aren't terribly stable, they're not moving in a direction that's going to upset the sort of apple cart. I mean, you might say policies aren't terribly stable in Italy, so what's new? That's been the experience of the past year and the past several decades as well. So then you're looking at bond yields. And there, I think it's a, a lot of that is in the gift of the ECB, the European Central Bank. So the ECB has said it's going to keep buying government bonds at least until September and possibly beyond that. And I think that, for the time being, is a love to keep. Uh, sort of bond yields low in in Italy, that there's a reason to sort of hold them. So for now, it's difficult even to see in in the Italian context that that things are going to suddenly get worse. And actually, Italy is seeing some pretty decent growth numbers just alongside just about every other economy in the world.
1: What, What about America, Henry? Again, politics seems chronically unstable, and yet the economy generally and the markets in particular seem to have been remarkably immune to a state of constant turmoil emanating from the White House. What what might change that?
0: Well, I think uh, the thing to remember about American politics is there's a lot of drama, but it is difficult to get things done. Uh, you know, we might have tax cuts in 2018. People are worried that that might stimulate a, an economy that doesn't need it. The likelihood is that the Federal Reserve would raise rates rates faster uh, to account for uh, exactly when tax cuts uh, hit in an attempt to kind of o- offset them. Other than that, when you think about the influence of politics, you've got to think about the things that can happen because the president has a lot of power. So I think the biggest risk on that front is to NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Uh, America has been trying to renegotiate this with Canada and Mexico, but has not made a lot of progress. And I think there is certainly a risk that uh, America could pull out of NAFTA, in which case that that would be very bad for firms who have these kind of crisscrossing supply chains across North American borders that cause a lot of disruption. Uh, So I, I, I think that's the main risk. But in terms of the general kind of geopolitical angst that people feel about the kind of decline of America's politics, actually, I think the effect on the economy is more of a A long-term one because it becomes difficult for American politicians to pass sensible economic policy and that's a kind of long-term rot but in terms of 2018 uh, it's not something that's gonna kind of blow up in some kind of Big Bang unless like I say you get serious action on NAFTA.
1: John can I ask you about another place where politics and economics intersect that's here in Britain with Brexit becoming more and more front and centre of people's minds again the economy Uh, appears not to have been too dramatically hit so far, markets have been uh, quite stable, sterling has recovered from its lows. Uh, Can we expect that to persist through the year?
2: Very difficult to say. I think um, we should say, first of all, that that if there is one obvious underperformer in the global economy amongst rich countries, it is the UK. So the UK economy is doing pretty well, but every other economy is doing very well. So the distinction, the, dis- the difference between those two, I think, is important. I think absent Brexit, the UK economy would also be seeing sort of much stronger growth. Um, so there is a sort of uncertainty hanging over it. And in markets, I think if you look at the UK stock market, it's sort of underperformed the global averages. Uh, Sterling, as you, as you point out, has dropped quite a long way from where it was before the Brexit vote in June 2016, but it has actually recovered a bit of ground. So uh, it seems to be more of a kind of... It's, a much, it's like muddle through, muddle through politics and gives you a sort of muddle through economy. It's not going to be catastrophic. It's probably going to underperform. Um, at the moment, the feeling is, um, is that it's, it's the kind of Brexit we're going to get is, is leaning towards the soft side. But we really don't know how the second round of negotiations will play out. And it seems like there's probably more scope for a piece of bad news than something that's going to make us feel a lot better about the UK economy.
1: OK, I think it's time to call for some predictions for 2018. Henry, what do you expect, uh, let's say, US GDP growth and one major policy introduced in 2018? In what, what, what are your predictions for the year?
0: All right. Well, I'd say that uh, GDP growth probably will get a slight boost from tax cuts uh, and we'll probably see a bit more investment, but it will be closer to 2.5% than to 3%, which is the administration's target. I'll try and avoid committing myself to a precise number. In terms of policy, well, I'd say my main prediction that is slightly outside the mainstream is that I think there's a decent chance that the Fed becomes are more hawkish than is currently predicted. People are seeing Jerome Powell, who will take over from Janet Yellen in February, uh, as a kind of continuation of the status quo. And it's true that he's been on board with most of what she's done uh, and her general approach. But there's a lot of turnover happening on the Fed committee, the presidents of the local reserve banks, who also get to vote, they rotate every year, and we're losing some doves and gaining some hawks. Uh, And then President Trump uh, will probably have to fill some more seats as well. And while he appointed Powell, a kind of relative dove to the chairmanship, he's appointed Marvin Goodfriend, who's, who's been quite hawkish to the board. And so he might repeat that. And so it's possible that in about six months time, the, the, the chair uh, finds himself surrounded by other hawks on the committee, and it's not really known how much he, he'd be prepared to lead them in the other direction and assert his authority. So if you get a hawkish turn at the, at the Fed, what that would look like is kind of more like four or five interest rates rises rather than three or four, and also possibly uh, speeding up uh, the shrinking of the, of the balance sheet, uh, which started in September and is now on autopilot, but c- could be sped up.
2: John, how about you uh,
1: how about a, a growth rate for, for the eurozone and, and for, for the UK if you, if you dare?
2: Oh the UK gosh I mean I, I hate forecasting most of the most of the time but UK growth figures are so prone to revision from a long experience of covering the UK economy that anything number I come up with won't be close to what the, the number that prints with. Um, I think it's going to be positive put it like that. Eurozone will be two-ish I don't think it will do as well as America. in terms of policy surprise. Now absent, so so Henry's talking about where I think the risks lie to, to U.S. policy. But if we have a U.S. policy that's a kind of as expected policy, I think that's a situation that we're moving into a sort of scenario, I think, with, with the, the world economy where the sort of currency war idea of monetary policy being used to drive down the exchange rates so or drive exchange rates away from their sort of fair value mm-hmm is slowly coming to an end and I think foreign exchange markets are the most forward looking of all of the financial markets so a risk I think is you get a much faster snapback in the euro to have a pretty cheap currency in an economy that's actually really doing pretty well is probably something that's not fully sustainable and it is an economy with a gigantic current account surplus so all the the fundamentals start pushing the euro back up to and possibly even beyond its sort of fair value on Big Mac Index or whatever your favourite valuation metric is. The other policy prediction is that we won't get much uh, policy change, uh, which is to say this is supposed, this is billed as the year in which we get landmark Eurozone reform. We're really going to start fixing the roof on, on the Eurozone in architecture. No, this is the one, because the elections are over now, Simon. So it's we're going to def, definitely, definitely do it this time. And I think we're definitely, definitely not going to do it. I think we, what we get is de minimis and uh, it will be really just, I think, for commentators like ourselves, not a great deal to really talk about.
1: John O'Sullivan, economics editor. Henry Kerr, US economics editor. Thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you both for sticking your necks out. And I look forward to discussing how accurate you were in a year's time. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. Well, are you feeling optimistic about 2018 in economic terms? Please get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radioeconomist.com. Finally, for our Christmas and New Year's double issue, our economics correspondent, Samir Keynes, has been exploring why there are so few women in the field of economics.
4: Samir? So first of all, it's worth setting out the scale of the the problem. Um, So among senior economists in Europe, around 20% are women. Among uh, tenured professors in American universities, it's around 15%. That's really not very many. Um, And it's been rising, but very, very slowly over time. So explaining why that is the case is, is complicated and it happens in, in multiple steps. So the first issue is that students just don't seem to be picking economics. So women make up around a third of economics undergraduates, uh, which just isn't very many. And then at every single stage, from you know having finished your PhD to becoming an associate professor, going up this ladder, at every stage women disproportionately drop out. So for these later stages, one of the, you know, classic ways in which economists would look at this, this question is, well, you know, what are the incentives that women face to drop out? Is it their preferences? Do they not like being in academia? Um, or, you know, is it that they face constraints? Um, are they being discriminated against? So increasingly, there's evidence that actually it might be sort of hidden constraints that women are facing. Maybe they have higher bars, or they're facing these implicit biases. So economists might not think they're biased, they might think, you know, rationally that they would treat a similarly qualified man and woman exactly the same, but in practice, they don't. One of the really interesting pieces of research is by Heather Sarsons, and she's she's from the Harvard Economics Faculty. And she has looked at how economists get promoted. The mechanism that she's looking at is whether there's an implicit bias. So a bias that economics hirers might not even realise that they have. They might think that they treat similarly qualified men and women equally, but underlying the back of their mind, they've got these implicit assumptions that they're using. So I asked Heather uh, how economists get promoted.
3: What's the process like? In research uh, institutions in particular, people are promoted based on their publication record. Uh, So this is both the number of publications they have and the types of journals that they're published in.
4: And is economics different from other fields in terms of how the research is put out
3: Yeah, so the main difference between economics and a lot of other fields is that when we co-author a paper with other people, the co-authors are listed alphabetically, whereas in other fields, they're listed in order of contribution.
4: There's this difference in how authors are listed on papers. What did you suspect about why women weren't getting promoted at the same rate as men?
3: So I wanted to see whether co-authored papers by men and women are differentially attributed based on uh, gender. So if a woman co-authors with a man, is she less likely to get credit for that paper? And does that then have implications for whether she gets tenured? So
4: the idea would be that if you see two authors on a paper, they're in alphabetical order, you don't know who's contributed more, and people might make an assumption that women have contributed less.
3: Exactly. What did you do to look at that? So I gathered uh, people's CVs from the top 30 economics departments in the U.S., And from these CVs, it lists uh, their publication record, where they publish their papers, and who they publish them with. And then I can also find whether or not they receive tenure at an institution. So I looked at the correlation between uh, the fraction of someone's papers that were co-authored and whether or not they got tenure. And there I see that conditional on kind of the quality of the paper and where it's published and so on, Women who solo-author a lot of their work are as likely to get tenure as similar men, but women who co-author a lot of their work are much less likely to get tenure than similar men.
4: So if a man co-authors with a woman, that doesn't really do much to his chances of getting promoted, whereas if a woman co-authors with a man, that does hurt her chances. Exactly. Okay, so you found this result, you showed it to other economists. What were some of the explanations
3: they suggested for this? Um, So a lot of economists uh, were very open to this research. Um, There were some other channels that people put forward um, that I'm not able to fully rule out. So Some people suggested that, for example, women might be more likely to leave um, before they get tenure because they need to follow a spouse somewhere or something. This would have to be correlated then with women co-authoring specifically with men because I see that women who co-author with other women don't receive a penalty for co-authoring. Other suggestions were things like maybe there's selection into who people co-author with, so men might be more likely to take on kind of lower ability women onto their papers. And then this kind of, uh, you know, giving women less credit for those papers can then be seen as a rational, uh, yeah, a rational action. Did anyone suggest that women might just work less
4: on papers co-authored with men?
3: Uh, yeah, that's an explanation that some people put forward and that I can't rule out. You can't rule it
4: out, but what do you think is driving this feature in the data?
3: I would guess that it is some kind of bias that people hold. When people see a man and a woman on a paper, they're going to maybe just assume that the man did more of the work or had the idea or something like that. From my experience, women who work with men aren't putting in less effort than the men. This doesn't sound
4: great if some kind of implicit bias means that women aren't getting as much credit for their work as men. Could there be anything that economists could do to fix it?
3: Yeah, so some people have suggested moving to ordering our co-authors in order of contribution to make clear uh, who contributed what. Because there's evidence that women kind of tend to shy away from bargaining and things like this, I don't know that that would solve the problem. My hope is that people being aware of this will kind of make them slow down when they're looking at a paper and kind of considering whether the woman should get tenure based on this paper... But the more tangible thing, I think, would be to change the authoring system.
4: Heather, thank you very much.
3: Thank you. Samir
1: Keynes, thanks very much. Let's hope that the economics profession becomes as equal out there in the real world as it is here at The Economist. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist.